Welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, an ongoing series within the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting universe of podcasts related to professional wrestling. And in the Match of the Week series, you either get a pick from myself, Lorcan Mullen, or you Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, where we pick a match from the wide history of wrestling from all over the world to discuss place in a modern context, and see how our opinions have either changed based on our previous viewings of this match, or have been moulded upon seeing this match for the first time. Simon, it was my pick this time. What have I gone with? You have gone with a matchup between Kiji Muto, otherwise known by many as the Great Muto, and Genichiro Tenru. I think it's Genichiro. I think, I think it's harder G's. I used to say Genichiro, but I think it's Genichiro. So, two guys that we used to. One more than the other. We saw a few more Tenru matches than we did Muto matches in our five-star projects. But two significant figures at an important time in pro wrestling, really, both in the United States and Japan. 2001 is a year that you could talk about for ages because essentially... The status quo of the previous decade or so, more than a decade in Japan terms, had blown up. You know, in WWF, it was the WWF now owned North American wrestling essentially by March of 2001 with the death of both WCW and ECW. And at this time, this was just when the invasion angle was taking place in WWF. And WrestleMania 17 hit. Whereas in this world, there is an invasion, but both of these men could be argued are invading this promotion. But that's because there's not much of a promotion left at this stage. <laughs> so All Japan obviously had been the, ma- the promotion that we'd watched the most of during the 90s period of the Five Star Project and left a lasting impression on both of us. And I still think to this day, if you're to ask the wrestling obsessive if they could only watch one era of professional wrestling... 90s All Japan might very well be the case. I think CM Punk has said like he considers 1993 All Japan to be the best that wrestling's ever been. Yeah. And that all changed in 2000 when Mitsuharu Masawa took with him 90% of the talents and the backroom staff to form Noah, having fallen out with the widow of Giant Baba, who died in 1999. <clears throat> And so with that, you've got All Japan, which was just a shell at this point. And I watched a bit of footage build up to this where literally the only three people that can come out to the ring as All Japan natives, essentially, at this point were Masanobu Fushi, the shithouse. Yay! Toshiaki Kawada, the one member of the four pillars that had stayed with All Japan as opposed to going with Misawa, which is what Kabashi and Tawai had done. And one of their top, not really gaijin, but top prospects, who was known as Manokea Mossman, but was renamed around this time as Taiyo Kia, a Hawaiian professional wrestler. Oh, okay. That was like seen as a potential star, but obviously thrust into the spotlight a lot more. 
But they're obviously scrabbling for talent at this point. They need anyone to help bolster their ranks. Masanobu Fushi had essentially become, in his late 40s or whatever it was at this point, or mid-40s, a comedy six-man tag wrestler for the most part. And then just suddenly... He's put into the main event of the next show. I think I did a thing where I like read the whole list out of the the last new All Japan match before the Exodus and the the latest one and how crazy it was. I think it was just like a five match card and like one tag match. Ugh. Even some of the top Gaijin talent like Two Cold Scorpio and Vader and the like had decided to go with Noah. Well, it's Masao, isn't it? At the end of the day, he's got pulling power. So where does All Japan go from here? Well, one of the first steps they do is opening their doors to other talent. Because essentially, All Japan, at a time in the 90s where promotions were doing lots of interpromotional activity around each other, uh, in the junior heavyweight division, to the point that they unified eight different belts for different promotions into one mega championship. All Japan essentially had an isolationist policy. There were a couple of people that came in. Gary Albright joined after the demise of UWFI. For a while, Hayabusa and Jinsei Shinzaki left FMW to join All Japan. But for the most part, outside of a few gaijin guys like Vader joining in 99, they pretty much kept to themselves and also have failed to elevate really any talent outside of Junakiyama mm. throughout the whole of the 90s, essentially. So one of the first things that they do is bring back Genikiru Tenru, who was, after Jumbo Saruta, who was going to carry the promotion on his shoulders with Saruta, and had established yeah. the Triple Crown style of wrestling, the, the, this new All Japan main event style that took elements of the 70s style, but then meshed it with more epic quality to the matches, and larger spots and more emotional storytelling i suppose then from there it develops over the four pillars to the head droppings and what have you and also the other thing that all japan have to do is open their doors to rival promotions the very logical point being new japan and new japan bring them in but again it's funny with interpromotional wrestling usually that happens when the promotion itself can't really stand on its own two feet as well as it can do yeah. I think it's very significant that New Japan are doing this Wrestle Kingdom Night 3 interpromotional thing with Noah after a fairly rough 18 months for them. Yeah. And the need to do something fresh. Well, yeah, like, the pandemic was not kind to New Japan in the slightest. And you're right, something fresh is needed. Noah's just around, really, at the minute. It's not really like... It's not caught headlines the same way as like when Kenta... Was there or it has its fans? Obviously, the yeah. the Shiazaki Sugiura match and the Shiazaki reign in general brought a lot more attention to people. There are a lot of people I follow on Twitter who are adamant that overall Noah is more interesting than New Japan is right now, with its odd blend of newer stars and guys in their fifties. <laughs> <laughs> One of which is the challenger in this match, which is Kijimuto. So Tenru comes in. The All Japan Triple Crown has been vacated. I believe it was Kabashi who was the champion at that point when he left the promotion. And obviously with Kawada as the default ace of the promotion and he being the one that had gone in and done the high-profile matches in New Japan and had scored a win over Kinsuke Sasuke in their first match. Yeah. But then Sasuke won it back at the subsequent January 4th show. 
So essentially one of the things you need in when you're trying to build yourself up is get these guys to be built up. So Kawada loses to Tenru in the final for the Triple Crown Championship. And so 10 years after he'd won it, more than 10 years after he'd won it from Jumbo Saruta, before leaving All Japan to first form Super World of Sports, and then after that falls apart, forming WAR. And then after that falls apart... <laughs> to be fair, WAR lasted for a few years. He's not like he's Michael Palin in Monty Python. I built a castle on a swamp. That fell into the swamp. Then I built a second one. That fell into the swamp. Then I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, and then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one stayed up. Now, see, I had a different Michael in my head talking about this. I had Michael Scott in the negotiation episode. My company is worth nothing <laughs> because if it fell apart, I would just start another one. <laughs> With a different name each time. Michael Scott Company. The paper company of Michael Scott. Michael. That's another one. That's, that's a name. <laughs> <laughs> but Tenru, to a lot of people's surprise, had come back reinvigorated in the late 90s when he joined New Japan. And even got a short IWGP Heavyweight Championship reign, where he ended Kijimuto's near-year-long reign in 1999, before dropping it to Kensuke Sasuke at the Tokyo Dome. But he'd sort of ran his course in New Japan. He'd had all the dream matches that he was going to have. So him going back to All Japan was sort of a mutually beneficial situation for both of them. Kijimuto coming to All Japan is a more interesting thing. 2001 Kijimuto is one of the most miraculous years in any professional wrestler's career ever. Yeah. It's up there with Austin in 98, Bret Hart in 97, Triple H in 2000, Ric Flair in 1989, Kazuchika Okada in 2017 uh, or 2016. Well, basically around that time period anyway. Everything he was touching was turning to gold at this point. Right from him turning up at New Year's Eve, New Year's Day at a special Inoki events, where he teamed up with Nobuhiko Takada against Don Fry and Ken Shamrock. Whoa, two big boys. But they didn't get along with each other was the story of the match. Uh, but the big story of the match, more than anything, was Muto, when he made his entrance, he, he had like that, that AJ Styles thing. I wouldn't be surprised if AJ Styles kind of took it from him, where he's wearing the like big overcoat thing. Yeah. And a hood over him, and he's just sort of peeking out of it, looking out, see where he's going, basically. And then his name gets announced, he rips off the hood to reveal his fully shaved head. Yeah. Because Muto from about 96 to 2000, boy was he hanging on for dear life as far as <laughs> hair goes. It's a hard thing for people to let go of. Especially Muto. But what is fascinating is that that shaved head... And then very soon after that, he grew the goatee out. So he kind of turned himself into like the wizard of... It's like he'd immediately gone to grizzled veteran status. Yeah. Overnight. And he looked like this wise man. At this point, he's only 38 years old. And the idea was, his knees are fucked. Yeah. So he's not got much more left and he's going to have to reinvent himself. Which was what he was sort of doing. Because in 2001... That was where he came up with the most exciting new move in wrestling, The Shining Wizard. Oh, baby. Now, if you watch The Shining Wizard for the first time, you're like, okay. <laughs> but what made it work is the simplicity of it. And I think that that was really a changing point as to what finishing moves in wrestling could be. 
Because I've kind of always remembered that the finishing moves of maybe the 80s and 90s were always usually some form of a slam. Yeah. Or a, a leaping attack of some description. Like the diamond cutter, for example, or the ace crusher. Yeah, the diamond cutter sort of... Yeah, but it's a slam movement. It, it's yeah. uh, Hulk Hogan's leg drop. It's Randy Savage's top rope elbow. It's the big boss man's boss man slam. It's Or it's a submission hold like a sharpshooter or a figure four leg block or whatever. Yeah. But it actually being a strike wasn't very common, really. I suppose because wrestling was so much punching and kicking back in those days. How much is just a knee going to make it work? But the idea was essentially, and it's funny when I watch this match because I've always said that Kijimuto is part of sort of a legacy of intelligent in-ring wrestlers. Yeah. He sort of inherited the mantle from Tatsumi Fujinami, who we see in the ringside crowd during the show. Not seeming to be very happy with what Muto's up to. (laughs) (laughs) And from Muto, you can, I mean, you can see so much of Tanahashi in Muto. Well, the dragon screws are low. Dragon screws, obviously. But also just the logic of the knee attack, which is what Muto bases pretty much his whole thing around. Yeah. And coming up with innovative ways to keep that interesting to the audience. Like he does a top rope missile drop kick to the knee. Yeah. Or off the apron yeah. to the knee. Or the apron dragon screw. Yeah. Or it's the different angles of attack. It's like attacking uh, Tenru as he goes back through the ropes. Yeah. It's a great sequence where he sort of gets like a flash dragon screw on him. It's the same moves, but they look... It's the variety. You're right. Mm. It's It's keeping it interesting and it's the angles and the speed of the attack yeah. that, that really works for him it helps that Kijimuto as a man oozes presence yes like you cannot help but just like be drawn to him when he is on screen and he's 38 in this and he's in phenomenal nick as well yeah there's a good reason he caught on with a North American audience in a way no other Japanese wrestler really had done at that point Yeah, in his run in WCW in the late 80s, which was just meant to be his learning excursion, essentially. But he got over so big that there was talk of maybe we should turn him face and maybe put the world title on him. At Starcade 89, he's in the Iron Man tournament to decide who's going to be the wrestler of the next decade with Sting, Ric Flair, and Lex Luger. Yeah. That's the states he's put. Admittedly, he loses all three of his matches. But he's there. It's thought the beginning of the end of his run in New Japan anyway, but the fact that they even put him there, ahead of so many other potential candidates, says so much about him. Yeah. And what he managed to do, and his run with Sting is something we'll have to cover for this as well at some points. And he would return to WCW sporadically throughout the 90s and would always be warmly received there. He turns up at Starcade 92, has a stinker of a match with Masachona, which apparently they were instructed to not have an exciting match by Bill Watts. But then he comes out later in the night and wins the Battle Bowl Battle Royal as a slight surprise. And the crowd go apeshit for him because they already they remembered him from... Because he's the guy that brought the moonsault to North American wrestling, was doing handspring yeah. elbows and all this kind of stuff, and just was so cool looking. And this modern version of characters like the Great Kabuki with the green mist and everything. Just so charismatic. And Jim Ross said, because, you know, he was a handsome man before the hair started to uh, fall out, that apparently whenever he would turn up in the WCW offices in Atlanta in the CNN building, there were uh, plenty of women around that were uh, fans of his to put it that way. Right, okay. 
So he had all these things going for him. And he's always, in a couple of years when I also turn 40, I think I'm going to do some lists of like my 40 favourite whatevers. And amongst them I'll do a list of my 40 favourite wrestlers. And Kijimuto would be right up there because when I went to uni, that was when I ordered a couple of videos from Strong Style Video. We talked about this in the um, the internet wrestling fan uh, episode of early on with Matthew from Botchamania. And he also remembered Strong Style Video. And I bought the New Japan Cup 94. I bought, not from him it must have been, but I got like the first five Ring of Honor shows on VHS. And I also got two tapes of Kijimuto in 2001. Mm. And it was so much fun to watch. It was low degradation. So I'd watched this match before, but never in this picture quality. And this picture quality wasn't amazing, but it was, you know, yeah. however many generations on from down. And the thing I remember from it was thinking that I wasn't getting much from Genikiro Tenru in that I thought he was quite inexpressive. But now that I've watched this match in the current day climate, understanding more of what Tenru was about, which was a stoicism, not an inexpressiveness. Yeah. But also actually seeing the expressions that he is doing. This match, I wish that wrestlers now who are in long matches with big kickouts of big moves were acting like these guys were instead of doing shocked Undertaker face when uh, for the sixth WrestleMania in a row someone kicks out of his first tombstone attempts. Oh god, that was like that's become a that became a self-fulfilling prophecy did that. Because what it is is as time goes on it's like they're they're calculating, they're considering, they're taking a moment because they themselves are in great pain. They're exasperated, but they're not, you know, big bug-eyed look or anything. Yeah. They're not arguing with the ref. They're just like, okay, where am I going to go from here? My knee pad's gone down a bit because and my knee's hurt, so I better make sure that's in the right place. And let's get back to it. And it sort of lends itself to the whole flow of the match, the way they react. Because it's not like a, oh my God, like big moment, like dip in the flow. I like it, it's sort of like a staircase how this match builds. Mm-hmm. It's like the the stakes get raised, they try and adapt to that. The stakes get raised again by one of the competitors and it's how they respond to that. They try to adapt to that and then so on and so on and it builds to a crescendo. Mm. Whether it be the I th- I don't know if they were going for a suplex or if it was meant to be a brain buster on the apron, but that's a, like a big example of a step in the process where the stakes get raised, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, Muto goes for it early on. He tries to win it immediately. Yeah. He attacks at the bell with a drop kick. He's hitting him with kicks. Tenru catches him. But then Muto's essentially able to turn that into a standing sh- shining wizard, which knocks him to the ground, goes for a pin, and then he goes for his ultimate finisher, which is the backbreaker setting up his top rope moonsaults. Yeah. Which is why his knees are buggered. <laughs> and Tenru is just about enough able to roll away from it. But from then on, it's like Muto's pretty much in control for the first 10 or so minutes of the match. Yes. Tenru would have moments of getting back, and then Muto just goes to the knee. And every time Tenru's trying to hit something, and like you say, he does that suplex off the apron. Yeah. And the apron spot, of course, being that big shift of momentum in an All Japan match that we watch so many times, whether it's... Tawai doing a Don Don or Misawa doing a Tiger Suplex. Or that's what it's all built around. And that sort of is with this match. But it's eventually the only time, the only way Tenru is able to get back into it is by wrestling Muto at his own game and going for Muto's knee. Yeah. That first drop, drop kick he hits at Muto's knee. He's like, oh, hang on. 
He doesn't like that. And of course, Muto has a history of bad knees. For someone who doesn't even like know that, I hadn't remembered that when I was watching this. Uh, you could immediately tell by the way he like conveys it. It's like, okay, I do it to people, but it's going to suck if it happens to me. Mm. They both at different points play the wounded animal very well. And, and in return, the other one, the predatory hunter trying to finish it off, like both of them at various points grabbing the other one's leg to do a dragon screw and the other one trying desperately to fight them off. Yeah. And then Muto's able to do it eventually. He gets his own figure four leg lock onto Muto after Muto had it on him. And it was interesting as well, I noticed he did a different version of it in a way insofar as instead of placing his calf over the the bent knee and the ankle, he sort of pushing his foot against the foot. So it's like he's twisting the ankle in its position as well, which I thought was... I don't know if that's because just Temu doesn't know how to put on a figure four leg lock or if he thought that's a better way of him doing it without him putting pressure on his knee to put the weight on it. Yeah. Because then after that, when he knocks him down with a powerbomb and follows it up with a Texas Cloverleaf... It's his knee that gives out rather than Muto escaping. Yeah, he's not able to hold on to it. And so he, he crumbles to the mat. And the whole thing with Tenru at this point is that he is an old, old dude. He's of that Fujinami generation. He definitely has a big, like, wise old oak tree vibe in in this match. And take into account that Muto's whole thing now is that he's like a lot. Someone, I loved one description that he looks kind of like he's the Yoda of pro wrestling. (laughs) But this is the guy that's older than Yoda. (laughs) So it's two veterans, one really experienced veteran going up against another veteran. And he has that weather-beaten... You know, he never had an amazing physique in the first place, which I guess is what happens when you've spent the first however many years of your life in in the sumo culture. Ah, yeah, yeah. So there's only so much you can do. He does risky stuff himself and innovative stuff himself. He does one of his famous moves, which is the spider-German suplex, where he sets Muto up on the top rope and then places himself on the top rope, sitting on it, but wraps his front of his feet are clasped under the middle rope. Yeah. So that means that he's able to release by falling backwards, but that he is safe as he's got himself held up, and the other person takes the fall. I remember Daniel Bryan did that to John Cena towards the end of their SummerSlam world title match. Yeah. Which was a nice little shout-out. And that he's then in perfect position to follow it up with his top rope falling back elbow drop as well. And there's also... um... A lot of nearly moments in this. Mm. Uh, like when Muto goes for his handspring, Tenru manages to cut him off. Yeah. And there's, there's many times you think, okay, this is the move that leads to the end move. Mm. Yeah. And they manage to like keep cutting each other off. And that lends itself to, as I actually was saying, it's like the veteran instincts of the pair of them. It, we are watching two chess grandmasters go at it mm. rather than a young upstart or like a cocky heel per se. Yeah. Because there's no innate heelishness in this match it's just two dudes trying to outwit each other yeah and outlast each other as well that they're both bruised and battered going into this match essentially yeah and who can make it last it's like i think muto's got more intelligence tenru maybe has more strength size power and toughness yeah and it's which one of those two will last out that almost makes it sound like these guys are the walking wounded and they're not they're moving tenru does a tope at one point God's sake. Quite a good tope, too. Yeah. In, in relative terms. <laughs> yeah. And For Muto- a man who has, like, tree truck frick legs yeah. back in the early 2000s. Yeah. And Muto still hits his handspring elbow. Although, like you say, he cut... That's the first real any of any offence that um, 
Tenru gets in the match. And already he's thinking as well, because he hits that where Muto's backing him for his elbow, so he raises the boot, and I think the idea was that the boot was supposed to catch him right in the back of the head. And then he immediately followed it up with an Enziguri, again hitting him in the back of the head, and throughout the rest of the match, Muto's kind of shaking the cobwebs throughout him. Yeah, he's been rattled. It's funny, because I was saying the other day about in the Hangman Page Omega match, how essentially the two areas of 90s wrestling, the strong style, athletic strikes and everything style of New Japan compared to the All Japan more epic longer main events big moves and everything but also layered storytelling merging together over the past 20 years maybe this is one of the first signs of that merger because it is Kijimuto of that New Japan discipline and Tenru of that All Japan discipline doing it in an All Japan ring I think that's the key significance to it with literally the spectre of Giant Baba looming over them because the entrance curtains have the Baba looking on, essentially. And so maybe this was the precursor of that, because it is a little bit... It is mostly the All Japan narrative, and Muta was a huge All Japan fan, apparently. He was always pushing the office to do interpromotional stuff with Kabashi, Kawada, Mitsawa, and everyone, and they... New, all Japan just weren't interested in New Japan, I guess, weren't interested as well. Because the thing with New Japan, when they do their interpromotional things, they like to know that they're the alpha in the situation. Yeah. That's what they did with Ring of Honor. That's what they do with CMLL, I think, for the most part. That's what they will probably try and do with Noah. That's what they did with UWFI when they finally came crawling to them for help. Yeah. And that's obviously what they were going to do with All Japan. They'd already had Kawada lose the big rematch to... Sasaki, and, and really after they'd done all the stuff with Kawada, there wasn't really much they could do. Mm. So essentially they loan Muto out for this year, and Muto moves backwards and forwards between New Japan and All Japan all year, and is the epicenter of this excitement. You know, it's like it's like the excitement of Rob Van Dam in the WWF, but they actually book him well. <laughs> yeah. And he gets big wins and he gets big losses. Like, he loses a huge match to Masachono in New Japan. But then one of his first title defences of the Triple Crown in All Japan is against Chono. And he does make it clear in this match that he's honouring the legacy of Baba and All Japan. And like I said, there is All Japan elements in this. And it is like, Tenru throws his best at Muto. Then Muto survives it and throws his best at Tenru and gradually gets what needs to get the win. He hits his big moves. Then he hits his bigger move. Then he hits his ultimate move, which is, you know, like the layered moves. Because the Shining Wizard isn't the ultimate payoff move of this match. He he doesn't win with the two times he does it. But what it is about is him... The point of what made the Shining Wizard so good was it was almost like a thing that could come out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like you see them both down on the mat. And then it's like, is there going to come a point where the other person's exhausted and trying to get to their feet... And when you get to your feet, usually you're planting one foot down first and getting up on your second one. And in that moment, is Muto going to be there and is going to be aware? Because sometimes he gets up and he doesn't do that. But then when he finally does and Muto sees it, charges, hits the Shining Wizard. Can't quite get it, but then he gets up, gets ready, lines up, hits it again, doesn't quite get it. You know, but it's like, it's the sign that Temru's knackered. There's not much left. After this, Muto goes on to... Reach the final of the G1 Climax, which he loses to Yuji Nagata. But then he makes up for that afterwards by winning the All Japan Tag Team titles off of Tenru and 
I think it's Yoji Anjo, who was uh, another one they had to import in, who'd been a UWFI guy for the most part. And then after that, he wins from... Who was his partner, sorry. Oh, Taiyo Kia, because that was the other thing that he did. Because obviously in Japan, it's all about you having your, your factions and your stables. What Muto did as well for this year was he formed BATT, Badass Transatlantic Team, with the notion being that these were all wrestlers from different places, different promotions or different parts of the world. So it Like was, the Barbarians in rugby. I guess in a way. So it was like Muto, Don Fry, Taiyo Kia from All Japan, who I said was they were having to try and build him up, so putting him in this faction. At the end of this, in the title ceremony, it's them. Hiroshi Hase coming from the world of politics, but also getting involved in some wrestling still. And Jinsei Shinzeki, who was the guy who was of Michinoku Pro Wrestling. And yeah, that's what this is just part of it. And then after that, he he wins the IWGP tag team titles with Kea against Tatsumi Fujinami and Osamu Nishimura. And so at the end of the year, he's running around with six belts because the All Japan tag belts are two belts. Like, it's pretty cool visual. Look it up if you can. Google image search Kijimuto six belts as to how he came up with a way of wearing them all to the ring. He ends the year by winning the Real World Tag League with Taiokea. And then he starts the next year by not signing another contract with New Japan and taking over at All Japan as the head booker. And then New Japan and All Japan almost immediately extinguish their relationship. <laughs> and Muto takes Satoshi Kojima and Kendo Kashin with him from New Japan. And essentially gets his own promotion to play with. I mean, seize the opportunity, eh? Why not? He seized it with both hands, but he never had another year like 2001. He did have a great year in 08 when he came back to New Japan after he left All Japan and won the IWGP heavyweight title from Nakamura and then ended up wrestling Tanahashi at the Tokyo Dome for Wrestle Kingdom. Okay. And, you know, to this day... 2021, he's the one that dethroned Go Shiyazaki for the GHC Heavyweight Championship. And they're making a big deal of him being one of the Noah representatives for this storyline. I'll be curious to see who they put him up against. Uh, Tanahashi would be a logical one to go, or do we get Okada facing Muto? Did you see the video where they were interviewing them and Okada was asked about Muto? He's like, I didn't know he was there. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I can't. That is Pico Okada being a knobhead. That line, oh, the Olympic athletes don't care what amateurs are doing. Yeah. <laughs> Someone tells me that's setting him up for a fall. Like, they did that with him, with the, him underestimating their Michi Marafuji. Yeah. Back in the G1 Climax. So I wouldn't be surprised if he wins the heavyweight title, declares himself the heavyweight champion, not the intercontinental champion, or whatever it is he's going to do on the 5th of January, and then maybe lose in a surprise non-title match to one of Noah's guys, and start that up as a storyline going forward. Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But yeah, this this was voted the match of the year in 2001's Wrestling Observer, and there were a lot of great matches in North America in 2001. Like I say, WrestleMania 17. Yeah, exactly, time. exactly. And this was still seen as, and I think it is Kijimuto's highest rated match on Cage Match. I might be wrong there, but I believe it is. Overall, what did you think? It was, It was... It was of that mould, but it wasn't of that mould at the same time that we'd seen with the Pillars of Heaven matches. Yeah, no, I, I liked it. Like I say, I like the um, the stairway flow yep. of this match. I like the structure of it. I really enjoy. It was a really enjoyable watch, and it's because 
it's a lot of it's around like knees and body language rather than like intricate wink winks and callbacks to storylines and stuff. It's got that plug and play ability mm. that I, I I like with a wrestling match. Like, I mean, there probably were references to like the match where Tenru had beaten Muto for the IWGP title in '99 that we don't know, mm. but you don't need to know that going into this. That, that's yeah, that's my point. Mm. It's like you could show this to someone who doesn't have a extensive knowledge of. I was going to say Japanese wrestling, but maybe wrestling in general. Mm. And they could pick up the flow of what the story of the match is very easily. It's a it's a great, great match. Check it out, really. And I was checking, yes, it is the highest rated match on... Actually, what would you give it as a star rating? I think I would go five for this, or four and three quarters, somewhere. One of those two. I'd say high four. Melts went four and a half. Can you yeah. imagine? <laughs> <laughs> So this is as good as the Junior Dos Santos match at uh, Full Gear. <laughs> a little bit better than that. Let's not get into that. <laughs> uh, another great match that we covered, obviously, early in the match of the weeks was him against Big Van Vader. And again, like I said, the thing that you see with Kijimuto and is what I love about Bret Hart, Misawa, Tanahashi, you understand what they're doing, why it makes sense, and why it's good strategy. Yeah. I don't feel embarrassed watching this match. Yeah, yeah. Everything makes sense everything flows everything's got a good structure behind it and it's not over the top in any except maybe him kicking out to shining wizards but again the shining wizard hadn't yet reached its status as like everyone's doing it yeah it wasn't an established thing christopher daniels in his early days of ring of honor he had a website that he maintained yeah, this was in the early days where a few wrestlers would do websites before it was just like a Facebook page, and no one bothers updating it after ten years, even though they're in charge of the social media elements of it. I'm not pointing any fingers at anyone, but he did like little short plays of things that had obviously happened to him on the road, and one yeah. was him sharing a changing room with Kijimuto. I don't know if it was the Ring of Honor show where Muto came out as the Great Muta and wrestled Christopher Daniels and Dan Math. Uh, for the All Japan Tag Titles. But he said, you know, everyone loves the Shining Wizard to Muto. Muto goes, really? He said, yeah, everyone in the US scene is doing it. <laughs> and Muto said, oh, I should have charged them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is funny, isn't it? Like, people do spiraling moonsaults and everything, but the move that had everyone talking, you know, kind of like how with Okada, everyone just started going apeshit over a drop kick. Yeah. And the move that got everyone talking in 2001 was a guy stepping on one knee to knee you in the face. <laughs> Works for me, though. I think it also looks so cool in, in freeze frame as well, maybe. That's the other yeah. thing. But that li- again, that links to the, just the innate presence that he has. It's a simple move, and, he make, and simple moves look cool, but it's also a cool guy doing it. Exactly. I mean, CM Punk's doing loads of Muto tributes in his stuff. Yeah. I remember him doing the Shining Wizard in the Samoa Joe match. So, yeah. Anyway, that's been our match of the week for this week. Simon, before we give the social medias out, what will our next match of the week be, assuming there are no five-star matches in the interim for us to cover? We are going to the south of the United States of America, to a, a little place called Memphis Wrestling. And we are going to watch a hair versus hair steel cage match between Jerry the King Lauder and Austin Idol. 
It's a very different kind of uh, <laughs> presentation, but with every bit as rabid a fan base, I think it's fair to say. Oh, definitely. But now, if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, about more Muto or Tenru recommendations or advice on, I don't know, how to maintain hair or whatever, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of cruciate ligaments missing from Kiji Muto's legs. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A at the end of Muta. N for the N that's the third letter in both Genikiru and Tenru. <laughs> that's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Leadbox, if you're putting at gmail.com. At the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week. <laughs>